Hey everybody, welcome back to Above Board with Canderpath. And today we have uh, what on the surface might not look like a fun, exciting conversation, but Michael Scott with us is going to make this a fun and exciting conversation. And, you know, we're a little bit over a month separated from all of the drama surrounding this uh, quote unquote banking crisis. And we've had some time as as consumers and as Americans to digest this information and and now that some of the dust has settled, today's conversation is going to be unpacking what's happened, but then more importantly, getting some current thoughts on the situation and ideas to be considering moving forward from our very own CFA, Michael Scott. Michael, welcome. Welcome, John. Thanks for uh, having me on today, man. Ah, I, I thought, so this is maybe the second, third, or fourth, I don't know. You've been on the show a few times as a recurring guest now. And yeah. it's fun for me because I've all, I tell a lot of people that you you you're able to so for those that don't know a CFA is a chartered financial analyst and that is a very serious credential in our industry it's a very important one it's one that comes with a lot of knowledge and skill set on portfolio and economics and you're just able to make it interesting so kudos to you well thank you but now you put extra pressure on me now i have to make it entertaining as well so uh <laughs> we'll, we'll see we'll see how i can do that but uh i, I know for a lot of people for us and, and the work that we do uh the month of march was at least very interesting i don't know if exciting is the best way to describe what happened but it was interesting at the very least well we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet but i've told a lot of uh clients and and friends that uh, I was, I took a spring break, like a, a trip with my family on spring break. And as with most times, I feel like whenever I take any type of time off, I open my phone Monday morning well, on vacation, but, you know, just check the market, see what's going on. And, you know, every, the world is freaking out because Silicon Valley Bank was having massive issues. And so let's talk about that. And I, maybe before we do that or get into SV Bank, do you mind because I've heard a lot of different things and you know, opinions about this. Let's just explain like a very, like a, a, I have a basic question for you. What is a bank and how does it actually make money? Yeah. So a lot of people may be confused about how banks actually make money. And, and there's two main ways that they can make money. One way is through fees. So think about a bank that um, originates a mortgage loan for you. You know, they can get fees for setting up that loan and everything up front. When you go to a closing document, you have all those different things on there. They're taking some of those fees. So that's number one. Number two is based on their lending and you depositing money. So let's say um, when I get my paycheck, I go to my bank and I deposit that into my account. As those deposits sit there, you know, I always have access to them. But my money isn't necessarily just sitting in a vault somewhere. The bank will then take my money and pair it with other people's money, and they may take it and give it to a loan for someone. Maybe that's for a mortgage. Maybe that's uh, for a, an auto loan. Maybe it's for a business loan. Whatever it is, they loan that money out, and they earn interest on that loan, and that comes to them in the form of income. Then they may pay me a little bit of interest. And the difference mm -hmm. between what they bring in in their interest and what they pay me on my deposits is their profit at the most basic level. So we're all familiar with you know our bank deposits paying us a couple pennies every now and then. Um, and if you know anything about getting a loan recently, when you pay 5% for a mortgage, the bank is keeping that difference. And that's how they're really making the bulk of their money. 
So there's a there's a margin. There's a little bit of a spread over like like I'm seeing rates at banks go from two to three and three to four percent. You know, at mm-hmm. least of what's advertised, right? Like at this at this institution, you can if you put this much money in your savings account, you'll get this much. And there's a little bit of difference on top of that that they're collecting as well. Yeah, it's called net interest margin is like the official term for it. And they can collect that in the form of, like I said, different loans, mortgages, auto loans. Uh, But they can also go out and invest that money in the treasury market or different Mm -hmm. bond markets. And they can buy interest from um, the federal government. So they can buy a 20-year bond, put that on their balance sheet. They get the interest paid to them. Um, and then they keep that difference again. So as interest rates go up, what we're seeing is banks are kind of forced to raise the interest they pay their depositors. So you and I and everyone listening, the money that we put in the bank, a lot of banks are being forced to pay us more because other banks are. And a lot of times people follow whoever's paying them the most. Good old fashioned free market competition too, where if banks start, if one bank starts raising rates and then people are going, oh, well, I'll put my money in that savings account, then the other banks have to kind of follow suit and that type of thing. Yeah. Well, okay. So with that understanding in mind, what actually happened to Silicon Valley Bank? And I know the answer, but I want to hear your version of it. Yeah. So this is a really interesting situation where... Silicon Valley Bank had been around for 40, 40 some years, and it catered to a very niche group of depositors. It, you know, it had a specialty banking towards the venture capital community, often out in Silicon Valley, thus the name Silicon Valley Bank. And what's interesting about them is that from, you know, let's say the 2018, 2017 timeframe, up until about 2021, there was a massive amount of inflows. You know, a lot of IPOs happening. There's just a lot of private money flowing to venture capital companies. These companies put their money into the bank. Um, and if you know anything about venture capital companies, they are generally not profitable. They are cash consumers. Um, these are very early stage companies, so they need a lot of cash coming in. But they also draw that cash out of their bank. So in that time frame, the bank received a lot of deposits. Then they turned around and loaned them out or they bought different treasury securities with them. And here's the problem. Uh, at that time period, if you remember in 2020, 2021, interest rates are at about zero. And I don't know about you, but I refinanced my mortgage for 2.7% at that time. Fast forward to 2022, the Federal Reserve begins raising interest rates. And as we know, last year, you know, it was it was not a great year to be an equity investor and it was not a great year to be a bond investor either. Why? Because interest rates go up, bond values go down. And that happens to banks just like an investor. And when they go out and make these loans at 2.7% or they buy a bond at 2.5 or 3% and then rates go up, the value of their bonds go down. And what happened here was that banks have to keep different capital ratios. They have to keep a a certain amount of money on hand. And there's different ways to measure money. And now we're getting down into like a, a rabbit hole of accounting. That's a great time to go into. But on paper, 
the banks owed people in the form of deposits more than what they had in reserves. That, that, that equity value went to zero, essentially. And what the bank was going to do at that time period was issue some uh, debt or issue some stock to raise up its cash balance, which is a completely fine thing to do, except for this news got out to people. And people heard that the bank was on paper insolvent, which then led to a rush for the exits. If you think about this and you're a business owner and you have $2 million in the bank, but it's only guaranteed up to $250,000 and you're an early stage business owner and you have to, you owe a responsibility to your investors. Do you leave your money in the bank or do you pull it out when you have the chance? Mm -hmm. And to put this into perspective, Silicon Valley Bank at the beginning of this had somewhere around 200 billion in deposits, 200 billion in assets. Mm -hmm. I believe it was something like Wednesday of that week when these this flight began, it was something like 40 billion was leaving in the first on that Wednesday. Wow. Uh, on Thursday, an equal number was set to go out. And on Friday, an even larger number was set to go out until the Federal Reserve and the FDIC stepped in and controlled the bank and stopped that from happening. Now, over the weekend, um, all those depositors were made made whole. So nobody actually lost money and the FDIC stepped in and insured everyone's deposits, not just what was guaranteed um, by the bank. And that, that was a big deal, right? That was a that massive they did that. deal. Because yeah. when we think about this, it makes sense for investors to take the risk, right? If you own stock in a bank or you lend your money to a bank in the form of owning their debt, you're in essence, you're investing in them, you're investing in the management. And this was a case of the management not aligning their deposits with their investments. They did not take care of how they managed the money. And mm -hmm. we're, we're going to find out a lot who knew this was a problem and when they knew it was a problem and why these things didn't get taken care of. But at the end of the day, the stock investors or the bond investors should be wiped out. Mm -hmm. Those of us that went to a bank and just put our money in the bank and we all, all we're doing is asking for 0.01% interest, we should, you know, what did we do wrong in this situation? Sure. So, you know, there'll be discussions on should we raise the FDIC limit? What actually is the quote unquote limit? You know, it's, it's 250,000 per person per institution, but there's also this implied guarantee that you know, maybe your money's safe above that. And it's not literally, yeah. but there's an yeah. implication there that it is. I think it's interesting because, you know, to the average uh, investor like you or me, you know, that $250,000 FDIC limit per depositor is fine, right? I mean, for most people, that's fine. Uh, but the uniqueness, and I think this does speak to their business model, is, you know, you have a venture capitalist that goes, hey, I need to withdraw $400 million. I mean, I'm making up a scenario, but I'm sure that yeah. those are the thing, types of things that happened. That's a much different demand to meet than someone who comes in and says, hey, I need to withdraw 20000 And And so I guess my question is, were what's your perspective on, were, were they actually insolvent? You know, when, when the FDIC, when they came in and took over the bank, I mean, were they actually insolvent or was it just getting ahead of this massive potential issue? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the situation is they were 
insolvent on paper, but in actuality, they were not insolvent. When you look at what the things that they owned were, they owned highly rated mortgages. They owned U.S. Treasury securities. There was no what we call credit risk there, or it was very little credit risk. It's not like a 2008 situation where banks were making risky loans Mm -hmm. and taking part in collateralized debt instruments and things like that that literally have a lot of credit risk to them. Mm -hmm. These were good loans and good investments on bad time horizons. And there was bad mismatches between uh, assets and liabilities. And that's really, you know, that's a management issue. That's, That's whoever's running the treasury department not paying attention or not realizing that rates may not stay this low forever. And there's the potential that they're going up. And when mm-hmm. they do go up, do you take a loss today to reinvest at higher rates to protect the business for a longer period of time, right? You know, so it is a vast difference uh, between the 2008 financial crisis and this financial crisis. This one was mismanagement. 2008, you know, we can go into how big of mismanagement that was. But <laughs> Global mismanagement. Yeah, two, two different things. One had credit risk, one did not. This situation did not have credit risk. So, so, so Michael, if we, if we fast forward now a little over, it's been a little over a month since all of this news broke. And obviously SV Bank was, was the headline of this, but then there were other banks mm-hmm. and other conversations about you know is the is the banking industry in and of itself uh going to you know going to have issues how how widespread is this how do you feel now sitting here in the middle to end of april how what are your thoughts on how the situation is resolving and and just perspective that maybe we didn't have a month ago when all the headlines were hitting where it was like you know one bank you know bank one bank after another is being taken over by FDIC and there's a issue at credit suisse and all that stuff how do you feel it's resolving now well one of the most interesting things about it is if you looked at march 1 and march 31st so the last trading day in march the actual stock market didn't move a lot from point to point and i forget what the number is at the beginning but if you told me that we were going to have two banks in the U.S. taken into conservatorship and, and closed off, and then Credit Suisse was going to be forced to merge with UBS, I would argue that the market should be 5 or 10% lower from where it started. Interesting. And it did dip in March, but it ended the month about flat. And I forget what the numbers are perfectly, but it was about flat. Now, where are we You know, a couple of weeks from the end of March? We're a little bit higher then. So... In a lot of ways, at least the equity side has kind of taken that event and shrugged it off a bit. You know, there was, which, you know, potentially is a good thing because the market realizes that this is not a 2008 type scenario where things are going to go up in smoke. This is a situation that was isolated to certain places. What I find kind of interesting is what the bond market tells us. Um, And the bond market looks at it and we can see that rates, interest rates are lower today than where they were at that period of time. The bond market's telling us moving forward that they don't think the Federal Reserve is going to hike that much in interest rates moving forward, which Mm. is kind of a a very interesting piece in this. 
Yeah, it is. Why that's the case? Because the Fed keeps hiking. Bonds are going to continue to go lower in value. Mm -hmm. And what was a two bank problem could potentially become a larger bank problem or affect more banks. The Federal Reserve is going to be very cognizant of that. And it's also going to put some interesting pressure on different banks around uh, the country. We have different levels. We have the JP Morgan's, the Bank of America's, you know, those are our money center national banks. Then we have your large regionals like PNC um, and Truist and, and banks like that. And then we have a different level of regional banks like Key Bank and M&T Bank and these different banks around the country. And we have community banks. Mm -hmm. that are smaller and, you know, are very specialized in the community they have. And this is going to affect different banks at different levels differently. I, mean, I know there's a lot of difference right there, but yeah, each, yeah. each level is going to be a little bit different. You, you've done, you actually earlier just in, in conversation, and I, I've heard you explain this in the past too, you've done a good job explaining this inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices. But an example that I've heard you give before that really resonated with me um, and, and it's, it's since resonated with, with a lot of clients we serve is, you know, if you just like put yourself in this situation, right? Like, so if you're buying, let's say you're buying a, a 10 year bond, uh, $10,000 denomination, 10 year bond, and it's at 4%. Mm -hmm. And then I'm a month later, I'm going to buy the same exact bond from the same issuer 10 year, $10,000, but it's no longer at 4%. It's at five and a half percent. And Michael, you come to me and you go, hey, no, 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 no. Don't, don't buy that from the new issuer. I'll just sell you mine. I'd go, I'd have to be like, well, you're crazy if you think I'm going to buy your bond at four when mine's at five and a half. The only way I would ever consider that is if I, is if I bought it at a discount. So you paid 10000 for the bond. I might now want to pay 8000 for that same bond. And you're probably cringing as I'm giving the, the percentages I'm giving, but I'm, I'm, using the, I'm using those just for like the perception of like, where it, where I think I had kind of an, oh, I get it. I, it's an aha moment. You know, it's like, I, I get it now that if rates go up, the value of my bond has since gone down, right? Yeah. So if rates go up, the value of the bond does go down. Got it. So, and I, sorry to interject with that. I just, I wanted to, that was such a great example that resonated with me kind of like, cause it puts you as you're hearing that it like puts you in the shoes of like, well, if I'm buying a bond and the rates go up, like, why would it go down? It starts to make a little more sense there. So Let's maybe just talk about what is the, the fallout or the impact to consumers as a result of everything that's happened over the last month to month and a half. You know, you, you've, I've heard you talk before about, well, you know what? I'm not going to take the words out of your mouth. What, <laughs> what is the impact of that? Well, there, there's, I think, a, a monetary impact, and then there should be a behavioral impact, right? What's the monetary impact? Well, if a bank is looking at its balance sheet, and saying we made you know uh, these loans in the past two or three years, whether they're mortgage loans or car loans, and everyone has like an, an anecdotal experience. Mine's my two point seven percent mortgage, and I'm sure you have one about that, and other people do as well. Like the bank at the time gave us that mortgage freely, but now they're looking at that saying, "Man, that one's underwater. That one's not worth it to us." So our next mortgage we're going to make has to be worth it to us. And we also mm. need to make it to the right person, right? So what does that mean? Potentially higher interest rates. 
potentially they may not want to make a um, certain more a certain loan to you anymore because they think rates are going to change. They may not be willing to do it. So at the you know the very lower levels in community banks and, and maybe your smaller regional banks, they could be more selective on the loans that they give out, and it may cost you more to get those loans, whether it's in the form of interest or whether it's in the form of fees in the beginning. And remember, we talked about in the very beginning here, banks do make money off of fees. So they may say, we'll still give you that 5% mortgage, but we're going to require like a $2,000 fee up front. I'm just throwing numbers out. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that we're going to see. And the really interesting piece about that, and we're going to see what the effect is, but that's almost like the Federal Reserve is raising rates without them actually raising rates. So for the that's past... What I wanted... I want, no, okay, sorry to interject, but I did want to ask you that because so everyone, you know, we kind of hear like, oh, the Fed's raising rates. Like that makes a headline. Everyone I talk to, that's like a, a topic of conversation. And yes, there is obviously a correspondence between the Fed raising rates and, you know, uh, what bonds do. And then ultimately what your car loan, you know, if you're getting a new car loan or a home loan, like what those rates are set at. But then beyond that, there are other metrics that influence rates. And maybe this is a little bit about what you're referring to and like the restriction in lending or being mindful of like, if a bank is having to look at this and say, is this a good business decision or not? The only way they can justify it is if rates increase a little bit more from even where, where they were. So talk to a little bit about that situation. Yeah, so the the banks, a, a bank needs to be diversified, just like any investor does, because when a bank makes loans, they're investing in whoever they're loaning money to. So there may be a ratio between how many mortgages they will give out, how many auto loans they give out, how many business loans they give out, how many personal loans they give out, what their credit card business looks like, depending on how many different lines of credit they give out there is a certain amount that they're going to give out in each credit tier as well. So Mm -hmm. we always talk about having a high credit rating. If you have a high credit rating, you're probably going to get first at at, at getting a loan. If you have a lower credit rating in the past, you may have gotten the loan, which is a higher interest rate. In this environment where banks are concerned about how much money they have and what the loans are risky and which ones are, are not and the timing, they may begin to be very picky about what kind of loan they give. And sure. they may, you know, if a bank thinks rates aren't going anywhere, they may give out more mortgage loans. They may give out more auto loans. They may be apt to do that, but also got to think if you're a bank and you're banking to a select group of people that may not hold their deposits for very long, do you want to give out 30-year loans or do you want to give out five-year personal loans or, right. and different things like that? So, that's really what we what we think we're going to see is that banks are going to get more choosy and make loans more expensive, which is you know kind of what we think the Federal Reserve has wanted to occur over the past you know year. Or we're going to begin to see that from the banking side, and that could put a little bit of a, a bite into the economy and slow it down a little bit. Well, so that's interesting in that that's how it would affect American consumers potentially in, in, in one regard from the standpoint of homes or, or auto loans or savings rates and things. What are, you, what are your thoughts on 
from an investment perspective, so this is a this is a big big old fat loaded question here for you. That's really difficult to answer. I know. What get your crystal ball out and yeah. tell us what the next. No, but I mean, I, I think the question we often get is, well, okay, is now a good time to invest your money? And mm-hmm. and that's a hard. That's obviously a harder thing to answer, and it's very specific in nature to somebody. But what would you say to just as a general answer to someone asking that question? You know, in the short run, the market can go up and down and it's going to go up and down in ways that you don't expect them to for different reasons. What we know looking back through history is the market follows earnings over time. And in the short run, there's going to be a lot of volatility. And I can tell you in the, you know, the next two to three months, what do we have? We have a debt ceiling debate coming up. And are we going to take it to the brink? If we take it to the brink, we could see some volatility because uh, Congress is playing around with something they shouldn't be playing around with. Mm -hmm. You know, that could be concerning. But where will we be a year from now, two years from now? It's a lot more likely that it's going to be a lot more positive than Mm -hmm. um, what it could be today or tomorrow or things like that. So when we think about how individuals um, should place their money. Again, it goes back to the fundamentals. What are you saving or what are you investing this money for? Is this for your retirement and you're 25? Put the money in the market. You know, mm-hmm. Are you um, about to retire and you've had this half a million dollars sitting in cash for the five years? Maybe there's a, a strategy, whether it's dollar cost averaging or treasury laddering or, or doing different things. Maybe there's a strategy to get into the market in different ways. But it's really specific to the investor. What we know is over the long run, stocks follow earnings. And generally mm-hmm. speaking, over the past you know, 90 years back to 1920, earnings have increased. So yeah. you know, still positive about that. In the short run, things can be rocky. In the longer run, the data shows that you want to be invested. It's always hard for me not to be confident when I'm thinking in the longer term picture. You know, it's it's... The uncertainty that can happen in inside of 12 months or even 24 months. I mean, it's it's really difficult to predict where the markets will go. But over a longer period of time, you know, I, I've always tended to feel a little more confident. But of course, then situationally, it just depends on, you know, someone's goals for, for their money. And people have different buckets of money that have different goals assigned and attached to them, of course. And I think something that we always talk about is, of course, making sure that you have a plan. And, and furthermore... The, you know, th- the idea that, yes, as you as you approach and get closer and closer to retirement, your portfolio gets more conservative, but retirement is not the end. That is mm-hmm. literally only the beginning. It's the, it's the start of for which all the decades of planning that you've worked towards, and now that's starting. And the portfolio still needs to be able to have the opportunity to grow and, and experience returns over a 10, 20, 30 plus year life cycle with, you know, longevity and, and people living longer and longer these days. And what I will say is you, uh, it was probably, probably a, a week or two ago, you published an article called why diversification still matters. And sorry if I butched the title of it, but I think that was, I think that it's was pretty close. It. It's pretty close. I think. Yeah. And what I liked about it in, in the context of this discussion I'm having with you right now, it was sort of relating it back to everything that's gone on in the banking crisis. And, you know, uh, you had some very good practical tips, which I'd like you to share here in this conversation. 
but I thought it was just, it was, it landed really well for me because it was such a great reminder that that example of what's going on in in this, in this banking issue does parlay very well to how diversification not only matters there at that level, but also within, within your portfolio, maybe, maybe just share a little bit about some of what you, what you shared in that article. Yeah, I, I think it's it's important to realize that most people understand that when they invest money, whether it's in stocks or bonds or their portfolio as a whole, it's important to be diversified. You don't own your entire portfolio of one stock. You don't have your entire bond portfolio in one bond. You should have some diversification there. But this situation with the banking industry showed us that diversification still might matter um, with your deposits. And even though in this situation and going back to the 2008 situation, depositors never lost any money. Investors Mm -hmm. bore all the losses. It's important to note that the FDIC insurance, what backs all of our deposits, is not paid for by taxpayers. It's paid for by the banks. The banks pay into that pot. So when we talk about letting the SVB depositors get their money. It's not like the taxpayers are going to write this check and it's going to the national debt. This money is coming from the banking system already. Hmm. So I think that's important to notice. But I I kind of get a chuckle out of it when people talk about the FDIC limit because it really should be irrelevant to most people. Not because 250000 is above what most people keep into the bank, but Let's say you're a married couple and you have a joint bank account. Each of you gets 250000 on that bank account. So the first 500000 in that bank is guaranteed. Then different brokerages offer bank deposit suite programs. And this is something that we utilize as well where your money in your brokerage account, not your investments, your investments are not guaranteed, but the money that's in the specific bank deposit suite program overnight goes out to a bank and it goes out to a network of banks. And I think the one that we use has something like 15 or 16 different banks. So if you do the math there, one person at 250,000, you can get a couple million of guaranteed Mm -hmm. cash. Mm -hmm. And then if it's a joint account, Let's double it, right? And if you're someone who has cash in excess of that, why are we not laddering treasuries? Because then we can just go to the treasury market and guarantee this out in short-term treasury notes and roll them. If you have $5 million in your in your account that's in cash, chances are you're working with someone who is going to be able to ladder the treasuries for you. Mm-hmm. So this whole mm-hmm. FDIC concern really for most people should not be a concern, whether you are um, someone with $10,000 in a bank account or you're a multimillionaire with millions in a bank account. There are solutions for you. You just have to diversify how you hold your cash. Well, I, I often say the very proverbial quote, knowledge is power. And <laughs> I, I do feel that just even hearing you share some of that stuff, a lot of us sort of get doled into that like 250, like that's the limit. And there's there's much more to unpack from that. And recognizing that there's other opportunities out there, I think is really important. Hey, Michael, so as we wrap today, 
what would you, is there any maybe parting words of wisdom or thoughts as it relates to this banking crisis or just the current state of affairs that we're in here in the middle to end of April? Yeah, I, the number one thing that I think of, and the market's kind of done a good job of it this past month, is that every year, looking back, whether it's 2023, whether it's 2022, 2021, going back to, I'm sure we go back a ways, but I know off the top of my head, we go back to 2000, there's going to be a reason to not invest. Every single year, you can convince yourself that there's something going on. I think 2006 might have been an odd year where nothing bad happened. I think Pluto lost its planetary status that year, which was like the most notable headline. But otherwise, (laughs) this is very true, by the way. I can show you the data on this. But there's always a reason to not invest. Don't let these different situations scare you. Work with somebody who can help you through it and what strategy is the best for you, whether you're just starting out, you're mid-career, approaching retirement or in retirement, there are solutions to handle these different events as they come up. I think you just came up with like our next podcast idea. It could be like like satirical, like 100 reasons not to invest. And we could do <laughs> like the year that Pluto was no longer a planet. That sounds like a, that sounds like a fun one. What do you think? I think we can do that. That's 2006, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, hey, everyone, thank you as always for listening to us today. I think that this was this is a really important conversation for us to share uh, as some of the dust has has continued to settle. But I would encourage you, um, you know, we're, we always make our best efforts to uh, keep folks in the know on stuff like this. So uh, canterpath.com forward slash blog. Um, you can also maybe maybe we can drop like a link to Michael's LinkedIn page uh, because he, he's also very good at sharing and publishing you know new articles and things that are that are happening just to keep everybody in the know so thanks as always for listening to us today here and we will talk to everybody soon see ya see ya